0: Hello, my name is Peter Newhan. My name is Ben Huber. We are the GPPR podcast team, and we're interviewing Mike Dubke today. He was the White House Communications Director uh, in the early portion of the uh, Trump White House first year. And we were really excited to interview him, uh, discuss a lot about how uncertainty played into his job as White House Communications Director, and also his career as a communications director. Um, individual in the private sector. So, I hope you enjoy. Okay, so GPR's GPR, theme this year is uncertainty. Uncertainty in institutions, uncertainty uh, in politics um, especially, and and I think a big part of communications, people that are involved in communications like yourself, is to try to um, kind of get, get through that uncertainty and try to inform people uh, what, what's the message, right? And I'm wondering if you could kind of talk about your role as the White House communications director um, while you were there and, and some of the things that you did to potentially bridge that, that gap of uncertainty that the American people may have on what's going on in the White House, what's the message that the White House is trying to deliver to the people?
1: So uh, yeah, from a communication standpoint, uh, uncertainty sucks. <laughs> it's a it it really um, it's it's trying uh, as you um, are bringing folks together to to craft a message. Uncertainty lends itself um, uh, to not to basically a muddled uh, and muddied uh, message. So the best way I I think to um, kind of work your way through uncertainty and to bring a message to the American people, uh, as you put it is to have some type of consistency in what you're trying to um, sell is too strong of a word, but what you're trying to communicate, what you're trying to put out there. So what we tried to do, uh, not necessarily very successfully um, because there was so much uncertainty and so much um, other other items that were coming at us at at the time from just very different angles. But what we attempted to do uh, in order to counter uh, this is uh, to to take each of the programs that we were putting together and have consistent messaging, not just from the White House, not just from, um, you know, the executive office of the president, but also from the agencies, from the cabinet agencies, uh, whether it be, and then also uh, we would coordinate with the communicators on Capitol Hill so that we would have a administration uh, message that mirrored as closely as it possibly could With the House and the Senate message, Um, whether that be on tax reform, repeal and replace of Obamacare, um, you name it. That was that was the way that we combated that. But it's a very. um, um, So as communications director, was it your
0: job to try to make sure that that message was consistent across agencies uh, in various branches of the Trump administration? I tried. <laughs> I, I tried.
1: Uh, yes. Yeah, so, I mean, a lot of times people uh, don't understand the difference uh, between you know, the press office and the communications office in an organization, um, at least in the White House. And, and I've used this before, but the best way to describe it is the pr- press operation deals with the today and the communications shop deals with the tomorrow. Really what that means is, we're looking in the communication shop to develop the long-term planning uh, documents that everyone can then refer back to uh, on messaging and so the best that we could coordinate that message across the board um, it's it's like when you amplify anything the more voices saying the same thing over and over again uh, will make that message travel farther Mm-hmm. um, travel in uh, in a more pronounced way, and in some weird sense, um bring certainty in this time of uncertainty to to um to an issue. Um, at least you know where the administration or in this case where the Republicans would be coming from. And if you know what the Republican stance is, and you know what the democrat stance is, that gives you the American people some certainty as to what the fight's about, what the intellectual argument's about. I think too often we don't even understand what our intellectual arguments are about on some of these large issues, and and especially when you get into issues like technology and um, there, uh, and privacy. There's not really a right-left issue matrix here. Um, you've got some things where on technology, for for instance, on I'm now out of the White House, working on a project for autonomous vehicles. Mm -hmm. Well, the industry, the auto industry, the technology industry, would like one set of rules. Um, Most Republicans would like one set of rules to govern autonomous vehicles, and that would be governed by the Department of Transportation and NHTSA. That's a very globally un-Republican thing, to say that you want the federal government to create rules rather than the states. And weirdly, the Democrats want the states to create all the rules mm-hmm. because they feel that there's a better chance to have whether it be environmental impacts or uh, or um, uh, protection of, of um, other uh, interest groups, um, unions, and, and et cetera. That there's more opportunity to protect those if you have a patchwork of state. Rules. So, this it, weirdly, you've got Democrats arguing for states' rights, and yeah. you've got Republicans arguing for the uh, centrality of the of the federal government, and that doesn't make any intellectual sense. But that's the world we live in, which leads to your, I think, uncertainty.
2: So yeah, and, and coming back to talking about forming a message uh, entirely, um, going back to the White House. Do you think there was is an issue of sort of a cacophony inside the White House? You, you've written about or talked about before interviews, the uh, different camps in the White House. I just wonder how much of an effect you think that had and, and sort of how the different camps uh, affected your relationship um, with the press secretary.
1: So, I, you know, I think I think when we're talking about different tribes, different camps within the White House and when I when I was addressing it, that was it was fairly early on in the presidency of, of um, President Trump. And it, it was more real then than it is now. Mm. Um, from from my conversations with uh, folks in the um, in the White House um, currently, what you had though, and it's it's pretty natural. And I think you have this at the start of every administration. Mm-hmm. Maybe not as pronounced as we had it in the Trump White House, but you have this at, at the beginning of the Obama uh, administration, the uh, Bush administration, you 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 name it. Clinton definitely. Yeah. Um, You had the group of people that worked day and night, 24-7 on the campaign, and they were mixed all of a sudden with people that worked day and night, 24-7 at the RNC, in this case, in the Trump, and they weren't necessarily working in the same direction on those two campaigns because they had different goals. The Trump folks had one election that they were focused on. The RNC people had one big election, obviously, the presidency, but then also making sure that The Republicans maintained the House, they maintained the Senate, there were state legislative races out there, there were gubernatorial races out there. And so their focus was a little different, but they were working just as hard as the people that were working on the Trump campaign. And when you go to war, which campaign is basically war, um, it's nonviolent war for the most part. Um, when you go to war with people, you develop a bond. So we had two big groups that came into the White House. Uh, we had the campaign group and we had the RNC group, and they were probably best um, personified by Steve Bannon and, and and Reince Priebus. And I think the reason we had even more of this, um, especially in the media, this dichotomy, was because you had two basically heads that were named at the same time, Um if you remember back in December. And right. it, and the setup was that there were going to be these two <laughs> fighting groups in there. It never really was like that on the inside to be perfectly candid. Um, but, there, but, but there definitely was, in the early days, your easy fallback position was to go and talk to somebody that you had worked with over the last six to ten months uh, and had fought in the trenches with. Now, everyone that's in the White House, whether you were in the RNC tribe or the or the campaign tribe or came from the outside, such as myself, if you've been there for longer than, you know, six months, you guys have fought so many battles together. You've got now a new kind of a new group, uh, which is the, you know, the pro- we'll probably be talking about the early Trump administration <laughs> people versus the folks that came in years, you know, three and four. <laughs> um so it all evolves, it all changes, but it's, it's you know, it goes, ba- again, back to a, to a level of trust, and it takes time to build trust with people.
0: Sure. So I want you to elaborate a little bit on some of the, the challenges that you encountered. Uh, you, you said that the press team acts independently of the comms team. The press team works on the news of today. The comms team is trying to set a news agenda for tomorrow, essentially. Right. But it seems like... With the Trump administration in particular, the news is 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 constantly being made on the spot, and I'm wondering some of the challenges that you had in creating that agenda for tomorrow when you know that, that press team seemed like to be seemed to be almost taking up the entire room all the time.
1: Yeah, no, I mean that what you what you mentioned at the top is was the ideal. Uh, where they would work independently of each other, press would work independently and comms would work independently. It did not happen, um, and I've and I've mentioned this. One of my one of my biggest regrets was not spending more time on the communications aspect and less on the press portion of really what wasn't my job. But because of where my office was situated in the West Wing and because of the relationships that we had developed, and frankly because we were were understaffed given the just volume of news that we had to deal with, uh, both on the communications but mostly on the press side, just understaffed in the number of personnel. There's only so much one person can handle. And the way we broke down the uh, press operation – was we had, you know, Sean Spicer was our was our press secretary. Sarah, Sarah Sanders was the uh, principal deputy. We had two other deputies, uh, one of which we uh, lost uh, because she went and became the communications director for the First Lady. That didn't get filled uh, uh, right away. In fact, got filled after uh, almost six months of being vacant. And then we had four um, assistant press secretaries, and we divided each of the agencies up so that they had kind of verticals of that they had to deal with. but there is so much incoming, especially with this president because we're dealing not just with matters of public policy, uh, a lot of times, but we're dealing with other issues that that come up of the zeitgeist. I mean, part of the reason you know part of the reason i'll I'll argue that President Trump was elected is because he understood how to speak, you know talk to the American people and get them. Uh, in a conversational uh, mode about issues of the day that don't necessarily, Twitter. using Twitter as an example, but issues of the day that people may be talking about at the at the water cooler, but didn't just generally make its way into the press room of the of the of the White House. Mm-hmm. They do now, and that was that was extra uh, overwhelming a bit of activity uh, for this, for this group. So the communications department, uh, worked hand in hand with the press department. So again, just to kind of circle back to the, to the original, I wish we had kept them more separate, Mm -hmm. but, um, the, the, what we did at the time, I think was necessary given the volume of what was going on. If you ask if, and I implore you to try to get a white house, uh, reporter, um, that has worked since January 20th till, till now Mm -hmm. in the first year of the, um, of the Trump White House, I guarantee you when you ask them, you know, do you find is, is this been the the most difficult um, time period that you've ever had in your career, they're going to say yes. And I don't mean difficult in any um, in any sense of like getting answers or anything, just difficult in dealing with the volume of stories that their editors are asking them to deal with. Most of these, you know, softball and slow roll it a little bit, like, how much time do you spend with your family? (laughs) Because my guess is they're going to say not as much as I was expecting or not as much as I wanted to. Um, So it's been hard on both sides of the equation, both the folks that are answering for the president of the United States and advocating for the president of the United States and those whose job it is to question the president of the United States.
2: Just real quick, what's an example of one of those issues that you think wasn't being discussed before, but but is now, or that um, President Trump was able to get people to talk about?
1: Or I'll give you one. I'll give you one clear example, uh, and without without um, saying if it's right or wrong, but just the the sheer fact that you know there are certain things in this country that we hold dear. We hold dear, you know, our our, our rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We hold dear our democracy. We hold dear that on Sunday afternoons, we can forget about all the rest of the stuff I just mentioned and watch some football. The president commented on uh, whether or not players should or should not be, or that they should not be um, taking a knee during the singing of the national anthem. And I recall vividly that the Sunday after that started happening, that all of the preview shows for the football games we're talking almost exclusively about the president and not about the upcoming matchups. That is, I can't think of a better example of where the president has kind of stepped into the zeitgeist of what uh, you know Americans were talking about, because it, it compelled the NFL uh, Sunday shows to deal with more politics than probably the you know the talking head Sunday shows were dealing with. Um, and so that, that, that to me is a perfect example of where the president has, has uh, you know opened up a conversation that normally wouldn't be uh, opened for the, for the White House. Okay.
0: So you talked about some of the, the warfare that goes on in campaigning, but I want, I want you to talk a little bit about um, what happened in the Virginia governor's race recently, specifically as it pertained to how those negative ads really started getting nasty towards the end with uh, Ralph Northam um, accusing Gillespie of you know being in bed with white supremacists right. and with Ed Gillespie accusing Ralph Northam of being associated with MS thirteen right um in an just era... pro
1: MS thirteen <laughs> <Okay>. not associated <laughs> okay. with it. just a cheerleader for those violent um, criminals yes
0: but but in this era of par- era of partisanship that we really find ourselves in today um, where do you think um, communications can cross the line when it comes to pandering to a particular base in order to get them to come out
1: and vote. So I'm going to, I'm going to answer your question in a, in a, in a slightly different uh, way. Um, And then I'll circle back to what your original question is. I, I think because of technology, and this is a much longer conversation that we can have, but Modern politics, and by modern politics, I'm really looking at from 2004 and to today. 2004, we had a number of things that happened. One, we had the Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act. So, you basically what what McCain-Feingold did, which is the common name for for that for that act, was take the take the political parties out of the equation for funding elections, and it was truly the start of Independent expenditure organizations and outside groups putting money into politics, which you mentioned the Northrum ad. Now, that was actually a coordinated expense, it turned out, with the Northroom campaign. But when it first came out, it looked like it was just an independent group trying okay. to do what they could to help Ralph Northrum win, win election. So you had that happening in 2004. And you also had in 2004 the advent of micro And basically what micro-targeting is, is it gives a campaign the ability to find those voters who should agree with them, but don't necessarily turn out for an election, to target them, hyper-target them, uh, and give them, spoon-feed them pieces of information and issues that they may care about in order to motivate them to turn out. And I'd make the argument that in 2004, what you saw was the shift of money in politics going to... Uh, outside groups, rather than the political parties, which, for better or worse, had a more global um, outlook of getting Republicans elected, getting Democrats elected, rather than just getting one particular person elected. Um, yeah. And that global that global outlook from the parties actually was would would temper a lot of the more um, uh, I don't want to say violent speech, but uh, the more um, rhetorical flourishes that these outside groups uh, lean on in order to motivate people to turn out. So it had a tempering effect. Uh, That's now gone. Uh, And couple that with algorithms and social media and all the technology that we have now, we've taken this thing that was micro-targeting, which is just identifying people's issues. And you couple that with social media and you have the ability to not just identify them, but then just, Mm -hmm. just continue to inject Um, um, to the voters exactly what they want to hear or don't want to hear in order to motivate them to vote. And, and And the end game of all of that is it is much more efficient from a money standpoint and from a time standpoint to target those people who should be with you or are with you but haven't voted in the past than it is to try to persuade anybody anymore. So now we're talking both sides are doing the screaming to their base mm-hmm. rather than talking to that, that group that's in the in the middle. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of what you uh, of what you ask me in your question, the reason the rhetoric has, has turned the way that it has turned, and you hear the shouting on both sides, whether it be about you know uh, these, these violent drug gangs or it be this just over the top white supremacist uh, accusation uh, from, the, from the Northam campaign. I think it's because what they're doing is they don't care about the people in the middle. They don't even care about their opponents. All they want to do is get their base motivated. And in Virginia, I think what we saw was a hyper-motivated Democratic base. Ed Gillespie got more votes in Virginia than Donald Trump got in Virginia. He got more votes than any Republican has ever gotten in the gubernatorial race. Yet he was overwhelmed and lost by what ten points, yeah, points. to Northam mm-hmm. because Northam's side was even more motivated than the Republicans were. So if you had told uh, I I haven't asked at this, but I bet you if you asked Ed and you told him the numbers of votes that he he would get um, a year ago, he 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 would have thought he was guaranteed to be the next governor of the, of the Commonwealth mm. of Virginia, um, just was not counting on the motivation of the other side. And I think that speaks to the effectiveness of all of this. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying it's good. I'm just saying it's effective. Sure.
2: Right. And we, and we talked about you know that coupled with, I think, what you call the 24-minute news cycle right? Um, and the, the speeding up of, of how fast people pay attention to news. Um, I'm kind of wondering if, do you think... Um, that ignoring an issue can it become a has become a more effective way of dealing with something. Um, if there's going to be something else to care about, you know, uh, 12 minutes later then why, why focus on something. Like, do you think apologies really like, have a place anymore? Public apologies. If you can just ignore something.
1: Well, I, people would ask me like, uh, you know, does it bother, as a communications director for, for this white house, did it bother you when the president tweeted? And I, my, my, Easy answer is no, and in fact, I don't think he should stop tweeting. But here's the reason why, and it goes to your it goes to your question, um, because if the president rapid tweets three tweets in an hour, um, I don't necessarily have to deal with the first tweet because it's been overwhelmed by the second tweet or the third tweet. So in that sense, in that 24 minute news cycle, um, if you're good at triaging. <laughs> What you have to actually deal with, I think you're going to be a successful communications director, communications person, um, because it's that we're we're that sped up at at this point. In terms of apologies, you know, apologies have always had a weird um, place in American politics. Sure. Um, I remember that George um, W. Bush, so forty three, was accused of not ever admitting that he made a mistake. And that was the big knock on him, which seems strange yeah. uh, now as we looked at, but during his presidency, he was knocked for never apologizing. And he, just, yeah. he he made a conscious decision that it would be better for me just to keep forging ahead. I think, I think uh, this uh, current president is of a similar ilk of just keeping moving forward and not apologizing. There are other politicians who just apologize left and right, um and you kind it kind of loses its meaning. Or asks others to apologize. And then we've we've entered this politics of apology. Like, why haven't you apologized? Or you did apologize, but it took you forty-seven hours to apologize for your transgression. Now we're timing apologies out. Yeah, sure. So we've politicized apologies. I don't know that they really mean anything anymore. And what are you really apologizing for? I mean, at some point, you know, Al Franken was apologizing for, uh, one USO tour Mm -hmm. and then he had to apologize for another thing. And, you know, then two more women, you know, I'm using, I'm just using him as a, as an example of somebody who's tried to take the apology route. Yeah. Um, and his apology changed. His apology was, well, I didn't really. It was a joke, and turned into then a full-throated, like, I really didn't mean that. I did. I'm mortified they took me to mean that. You know, sure. what I did was was offensive. So, again, it is so hard once you once you start down the slippery slope of apologies. You know, there might be something to what George W. Bush, the reason he didn't do it. Um is it better to take the knock for not apologizing than to actually apologize? I don't know the answer to that. I but it's a it's a it's not new to our politics, but it definitely is um is more heightened and, and there's more more of a spotlight on it.
2: Yeah. Um yeah, I think we're uh kind of close to closing out here, but um I was wondering just um since you've been involved with in communications both inside and outside of government, I mean, all sorts of different positions um what have you what have you found is the main difference between private communications and, and public communications
1: well the main the main difference is uh when i'm working for a company and trying to get their message out i'm struggling to get somebody to pay attention <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> when you're in the white house yep. you don't have to worry about that in fact sure. most of the time you're, you're struggling to keep stories from making mm-hmm. it into the into the press so i mean i think that's the biggest and starkest, uh, uh, difference. starkest um, the, the biggest similarity, I, I think, is managing expectations. Uh, very often with um, companies, for example, they'll read something that somebody wrote in a blog that nobody else in the world reads because nobody cares. But for them, it's the most important thing that's ever been out there. And you have to show them that, you know, us commenting on this actually is making it worse for you. And prove it to them. Uh, I had this one... This one, uh, well, this is a campaign example, but it works on the on the corporate stage. was working. There was a uh, guy who was thinking of running for governor of Delaware, and he was convinced that all the advertising needed to be on Larry King, because this is going back years. So I can. This is a safe example, <laughs> um, uh, because everybody in Delaware watches Larry King. I mean, that's what everyone's talking about the next day and we're like it's not nobody's talking about Larry King. nobody's <laughs> talking about what was on who was on Larry King he goes, no no it's true it's true so we actually had the cable company again Delaware being a small state we had the cable company pull the exact number of televisions that were tuned in to Larry King in the state of Delaware on a particular evening and we set it up perfectly. We we asked you know the next day, did you see what was on Larry King last night? He goes, oh yeah, I saw it. In fact, I've been talking to everybody about it. I go, really? So <laughs> are you talking about the other seven people in the state of Delaware that were watching that night? He goes, what are you talking about? And he goes, here's the data. Yeah. This is why we're not advertising. But it's the same thing with corporate. Like mm-hmm. You have to show, and there's, there's things out there that, that are actually helpful now on the social media realm, but show that this blogger, Has four followers Mm -hmm. and it doesn't matter, but you have to sometimes go that to that extreme to show an executive, to show a, a politician, you know, just because your neighbor or your niece or whomever said something to you. It, it it is not permeated through the rest of the uh, of the rest of your customer base or your your citizenry so let's let's be real about what we have to deal so a lot of what we deal in communications is what you deal with before you even communicate one word okay. it's just figuring out what matters and what doesn't
0: uh, just to to leave us off on a uplifting note um, mm-hmm. i want to I want you to discuss uh, maybe some advice you have for Georgetown students, McCord students who want to go into communications, um, especially doing, bringing this back to this theme of uncertainty. Is the public sector the best place to go? Is the private sector the best place to go? What Where is are career opportunities for people who want to go into communications?
1: I always think, and this is just going to be really crass advice, but I I think if you can, the younger you are, um, uh, go into public service and get get experience in the public service realm, that will pay dividends for you uh, when you go to the private sector and actually start earning some money. Because in the public sector, it just doesn't pay. If you need to pay off your large Georgetown tuition bills, Think about maybe going to the private sector first, but if you really want to be successful in the in the business, and it doesn't have to just be politics. I mean, I'd go the the, the probably the folks out uh, the the uh, communicators out in Hollywood are dealing with the same thing, or the business press up in uh, up in New York City, the financial press, whatever the sector of your interest is. Find those individuals who are dealing on a day to day basis with all of the big issues of the day. And generally it's, you know, it's it, it's more public than private with with those groups that are dealing with all the incoming, you know, we call it incoming. Um, and get some experience when you're young doing that. And then parlay that into um, not just the network you're going to build, because once you are dealing with all of these different reporters, you're dealing with all of these different industries, all of these uh, different stakeholders. You're going to build a network, and you're going to build it a lot faster if you go into the public sector first than if you go into the private sector. Private sector is fairly insular. You deal with the people in your sector, or you deal with the people in your company, and that's great if you want to work at a company for 40 for 40 years. But if you really want to, you know, um, figure out how good you are in this industry. Uh, I'd recommend going that route first. And then the the other thing, and I've I've said this from the beginning, especially for um, this is really for undergrads, but even for the McCourt students, if you get an opportunity to do something and you don't think that it just it doesn't lay perfectly along the career path that you've seen yourself taking, think long and hard about saying yes anyway. And the reason the reason for that, at least in my life, I have never. I've never gotten a job um, – I've kind of lucked into or happenstanced into positions that have then led to other things that have been good. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've never really been able to plan mm-hmm. <laughs> my career arc, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think one of the things, if I was to pat myself on the back of something, it was generally that I said yes to opportunities when they presented themselves, mm-hmm. and I was pretty quick to make that decision. I think I think uh, individuals sometimes wait too long to make decisions and then that opportunity passes them by. Um, the more exposure you get, the more experience you get, the more people you meet, the better off you will be in the end. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate uh, the conversation Thanks so much. Yeah, no worries. Thank you for listening to this episode of the GPPR podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. For more content from the Georgetown Public Policy Review, check out our website at www. GPP Review.com, our Twitter at GP Policy Review, or our Facebook gppreview. Review. Thank you.